would not be a good thing. Okay, there, there you go. Well, welcome to the history, and the exciting thing is I get to tell it. And uh, so we've worked at really, you know, making it up as we go to make it exciting for you here and, uh, and everything. Uh, my name is Randy McKean. This is my wife, uh, Kay McKean. And the great thing is we've also got Sam Lang here, which is pretty awesome. Uh, so, you know, we're going all the way back. And I think, it was, was Bob Gimple in here somewhere? Yes, he is. Oh, you know, so, so these people are fact-checkers right, checkers right here uh, and everything. So anything you really want to know, you can ask all of these people. But welcome, welcome, welcome. Really glad that you're here. And you do have to understand the person telling, sharing, and writing the history is doing it from his or her perspective. You've got that, right? And, uh, and, and things. You know, when uh, in 1987, uh, it was the first time for us uh, going into uh, uh, Germany, went to West Berlin on that trip, and then moved on into East Berlin because the wall was still up. And uh, we, we, over in East Berlin, it was interesting because we went to a museum, a World War II museum, and it was all from the Russian point of view. And let me tell you, it was a very different history. Uh, the emphasis was, I mean, the Russians were all the good guys on everything, saviors of Europe and U.S., they were sort of just there, you know, just sort of an aside. Uh, but uh, if, if history is told honesty, honestly, you're going to hear both the good and the bad. Is it okay to hear both the good and the bad uh, on, on the history? And we're going to try to be very honest on that. You're going to hear successes and some failures uh, on that. And, uh, you know, it's best if history is told from those who actually lived it, not just heard about it and, and things. And that's why we've got old people here like Sam. Uh, so we're just excited. Uh, about that. He's going to give me a hard time on that one and everything. Uh, so that's why we're here. You know, we are a movement out of history. Can I have an amen on that one? We're not a philosophy uh, that, that sort of holds us together. It's a historical event that holds us together. And you know what it is. Jesus rose from the dead. Can I have an amen on that one? Okay, so that's, that's why we're really all together. That holds us together. All of history uh, uh, coming to that point in time was Jesus raising from the dead. All of Jewish history was all about coming to the redemption. All of the world history, it says at just the right time. You know that scripture, right? Uh, look in Acts chapter 7, verse 55. It says, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Okay, Jesus, I mean, you've got to think about this. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Uh, great message last night because it was all about Jesus. You can't miss on a message when it's about Jesus. Here's Jesus, an advocate standing up for me, standing up for you, making a case, interceding for me. Isn't that wonderful? Doesn't that make you feel good? So in the midst of history, you've got to remember, Jesus is right there. Jesus is with us. Jesus is, is, is pulling for us. Now, we are not the first people who want to go back to the Bible. You know that, right? And we're not starting from the first century going, you know, all the way through. We were just asked to basically start from our movement, which starts at the Crossroads Church of Christ, really the 14th Street Church of Christ. Sam will talk about that. And then moving on in, uh, into today. 
Let's read 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15 together. It says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. And someone else is building on it. Okay, we're always building on someone else's foundation, as it were. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. You can't leave Jesus out of the equation. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to the light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive reward. If it's burnt up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only is one escaping through the fire. So the foundation always stands, Jesus Christ, right? Uh, and yet we get to build, restoring the first century church. We sort of hear that. That's, that's exciting, right? Restoring the first century church. Well, yes and no on that. Some of it, if you think about it, wouldn't be all that exciting because the first century church had some very serious issues. You want to restore all the serious issues. Sins, divisions, challenges, false teachings, lukewarmness. Would you like to restore the Corinthian church? Would that fire you up? And so we got to sort of get the perspective on everything that every generation has its challenges, right? And we've got to work through it because we're human and because we're dealing with sin both in ourselves and we're dealing with the world and, uh, and its sin. Uh, so there's going to be some failings, there's going to be some shortcomings, but, you know, by the grace of God, we strive to do His will. And by the grace of God, we build. That's the only way to build is by the grace of God. Ephesians 2, 19 through 20. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. That's unchangeable, right? That's unchangeable. And so the gospel of Jesus, I mean, it was preached through the whole known world in the first century, which is just awesome. It's incredible. It's awesome. And, of course, the marching orders for the church, go make disciples of all nations, nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'll be with you always to the very end of the age, sort of depending on which translation you memorized. Here's a recognized pattern of movements. Starts with man, a man. A prophet-like voice with vision and inspiration. Chuck Lucas was a man like that. Kip McKean, my brother, was a man like that. Then it moves into a message. The message out of Crossroads was total commitment, lordship, and evangelism, the mission. And of course, the message was world evangelism out of the Boston movement. So you got man, message, and then movement. It spreads quickly. It's, it's unified in purpose and vision. It's very sacrificial to complete its goal. That's a movement. Okay. And then, unfortunately, it can move into a monument. Typically, now it doesn't have to do this. We don't want to let it do this, right? But typically, second generation or third generation loses a lot of zeal. Uh, loses a lot of sacrificial spirit, 
uh, hasn't experienced the miracles of the earlier generation or generations. And they build monuments to the earlier days, but they're not living out what the earlier days were. And then unfortunately, man message movement, monument, it can even move to morgue. It has died. No longer spreading, no longer unified, no longer growing, and it's lost its mission. And again, it doesn't have to be that way with the power of God, right? But that's sort of the given ideas of what movements, what happens with movements. You got to understand the times, the 60s and 70s, anti-establishment mindset, women's lib, Vietnam protests, racial rioting, uh, hippie movement, uh, sexual uh, revolution, uh, psychedelic drugs, LSD big, President John Kennedy assassinated in 63, Malcolm X assassinated in 65, Martin Luther King Jr. assassinated in 68, Robert Kennedy uh, assassinated in, 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 in also in 68. Then there was the President Nixon uh, Watergate scandal of 1974. And this was the setting of what was going on in the midst of God wanting to move as he always does in every generation. The Church of Christ after World War II was, had a much evangelistic zeal, uh, and yet with the next generation, there was a lot of lukewarmness, a loss of evangelistic zeal, uh, closing doors, shrinking. The average number of baptisms was six a year, and that was the majority of kids' members, and the majority of those people did not stay faithful. There was three main evangelistic thrusts in the churches of Christ uh, at, uh, at this time. There was what was called the bus ministry, going out, picking up kids, bringing them on in, teaching them uh, uh, Jesus. And uh, that, that sort of uh, knocked on out after a number of years, but it was big and it was really striving to be evangelistic and do something great for God. There was the soul-saving workshops out of Tulsa, Marvin Phillips was a key guy in all of that. And that got a lot of people fired up and, and, and moving in the right direction. But in the end, that also uh, died on out. But then there was the campus ministry movement. And there were three different philosophies in the campus ministry movement. Uh, there was the Bible chair philosophy where, you know, you get somebody that can actually teach uh, but is from the Church of Christ and because they're teaching on the campus and teaching university courses that that somehow would draw people ultimately uh, to uh, the, the, the truth. There was a student center kind of feel where you just sort of let them come in and they'll come on in and let's play ping pong and let's play pool and, you know, let's just have a lot of fun and, and, and maybe talk a little bit about Jesus, but that didn't really do much either in the long run. And then there was what's known, became known as the Crossroads Campus Ministry uh, philosophy. And we're going to talk about our movement. And, you know, at least I've, I, I put in the four, uh, four categories here. Phase one, campus ministry movement with the Crossroads movement, approximately 1967 through 1987. Then there was phase two, and there's overlap here, you'll see, church planting movement, the Boston movement, approximately 1981 uh, through 2003. Phase three, I'm going to call the cooperative movement. Uh, of course, that was dealing with what a lot of people would call our crisis. Uh, you know, basically, how do we stay alive with what we're at and what we're learning and move ahead and do God's will by his grace? Uh, 
That's approximately 2004 through 2018. And then phase four, which just happened with Panama, I'm calling it a reorganized cooperation movement. And that's from 2018 until we change it. <laughs> and, we, you know, the good news is you can change things, amen, uh, as long as you stick with the Bible. Uh, but what we're really trying to do in that phase four is striving to set up the next generation uh, to do uh, great things. I, Sam, come on up, 67 to 73, 14th Street Church of Christ. This is one of my great heroes. Uh, the man that was my uh, campus minister for four years, I sat at his feet in Bible talks, learning how to do it, and learned to love the Bible and what the Bible had to say through this man, Sam Lane. Well, thank you. Thank you, Randy. It's so great to be here. Um, wow. I, if we had like five or six hours, I could tell you the whole story, but uh, <laughs> I got five minutes, so I'm going to give you uh, the basic, uh, how we began. Of course, the churches of Christ, what were they? They started back in the 1820s, and it was a call. Let's just not be denominations. Let's go all the way back to the Bible and not try to be a particular version of Christianity. Let's, let's, be, the, let's be what we found in the Scriptures, not necessarily imitating the sin of the early church, but the doctrine and the teaching and the call to lordship in the early church. That was the, the church, mainline church of Christ. Uh, I was, my mother was raised in that but never was baptized. My dad was a denominational guy, so I... I ended up going to his church and seeing the Church of Christ, and they, they didn't use instrumental music back then, and they didn't let you dance. And I said, oh, and they went on Wednesday night. And I said, well, oh, I ain't going. But finally, I, my dad passed away, and my uncle sent me to a, a Church of Christ youth camp, and they showed me what's known as the Jewel Miller film strips. I don't know if you ever heard of them. But it, it, it taught me, Sam, you got to get baptized to be saved. I'm going to do it. So I got converted into baptism. But uh, you'll find out, then I started going to the Church of Christ in Tallahassee, Florida. Then I decided, even though I was a Florida State University fan, I wanted to be a dentist, so I decided I'm going to the University of Florida. Summer of 1967, I showed up down there. This is when the campus evangelism movement in the Churches of Christ started. It was a man named... The University of Florida. The University of Florida. Uh, and I, I hated them all my life, but I said, I'm going in there to be a dentist. Well, obviously, I'm not a dentist. Uh, I drill your teeth, but as a disciple of Christ now, okay. Uh, a minister. Okay, well. So I went down there, and Jim Beavis had started this movement in the Churches of Christ, calling on us to say, let's go evangelize the secular campuses. Not just not send all of our kids to uh, Abilene Christian University and to Harding College. And all these schools, that's where all the Church of Christ kids went. They went to school there at, at, at these Christian colleges. He said, let's send them out here and let's go evangelize. Well, he showed up there that summer and so did I to his conference. It scared me to death. I need to be evangelistic? I'm supposed to, I thought that was just the preacher's job. I, I'm supposed to be. But that was the call they made. All, here, here's what they, they brought restored into the Churches of Christ. Every Christian needs to be evangelistic. That was a shocking call they made. Jesus is Lord. I thought I just had to come to church. All this rocked Sammy Lang's life back then. Also, one another Christianity. We need to love each other. We don't need to show up on Sunday morning. We need to have relationships that help each other grow spiritually. Really? I go on Sunday, but I don't know anybody. What? This, obviously I wasn't a true disciple. 
I was converted, truly converted, a year and a half later in the in the in February of 1969. I always like to sing the song. Back in the summer of '69, but some of you don't know that. Sorry, millennials. Sorry, Gen Xers. When I sing songs like that, it's not because I'm trying to insult you. I'm trying to feel like you do. I'm trying to feel as young as you do. Okay, but. I, that's when I was baptized, but I, I just want you to know that this was, it was a small church across the street from the University of Florida. 30,000 students over there. Five came, walked across the street to come to church. Five. I was one of the five. There's only five of them. They hired Chuck Lucas that, that same fall, fall of 67, to come there. I was 17 years old. He showed up. He said, we're going to take the gospel across the street here. But rather than inviting them to come, we're going to go and we're going to do soul talks. Soul talks? Yeah, we're going to talk about your soul. But we're going to talk about soul. And we're going to talk about life issues. And so that's what started happening. And you know what happened? People started coming to church. And they'd already been studying. And the first time they'd come, they'd get baptized and become disciples. But it was shocking to me. Finally, I truly was converted. A lot of mainline church Christ's kids came in. We'd been raised in the church, but had not truly made Jesus Lord. I'm not blaming the mainline church for that, by the way. I'm just saying that was the case. I don't know if you ever heard of J.P. Tynes, but he was one of them. Bruce Williams, who's now... Uh, we all came and we all got converted there. And then other people got converted, like Tom Brown, a true pagan. Wow, you ever heard of Tom Brown? He leads the North River Church now. Wyndham Shaw, Reese Nealon showed up from the Church of Christ, uh, uh, Sherwin McIntosh, who's now Mr. Mr. Music Guy, I remember inviting him to church. I invited his big brother to church. Uh, he was in my fraternity. I was a fraternity man. I had a soul talk there every Monday night. Chuck Lucas came and led it. I was the only disciple there. Remember the last year I was there, I prayed, God, could you give us five conversions? Kit McKean was one of them, and then, praise God, his little brother got converted later on uh, in 1973. I was there when he was baptized. I'm saying we started out with five students, and gradually, over time, more and more students started getting converted. And it, it, they were true pagans. And you know what we realized? <laughs> These weren't just Church of Christ kids. They were really uh, out there. And we said, we've got to teach them not to smoke dope, not to sleep with their boyfriend or girlfriend, uh, not to get drunk, not to curse, not to be a racist. we got to do all that. And we were criticized for that. Count the cost before you're baptized. No, just baptize them. No, you got to count the cost first. Listen, we were we were persecuted for it. We were challenged for it. No, you got to really repent, then get baptized. No, you don't become perfect before you get, but you make your decision. See what I'm saying? I got to share. So, what was the things we started restoring? Jesus is Lord. Every Christian evangelistic. Uh, one another Christianity. We also restored the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We was, they said, you're Pentecostals, you're out there work, you're working here. No, we just believe the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And we believed in awesome worship. By the way, it was all a cappella back then. Uh, well, I'm going to share that, that with you in a minute. It was all just, just, but it was still incredible. So more and more students started coming. And then the rest of the church at 14th Street started getting excited and said, let's go convert our people too. So we started converting adults. And then we outgrew the building. We started with 120 people. It grew and we had, let's build a new building right by campus. We built one that held originally 500, but within six months we had to expand it to 1,000. 500 people came, and it, that building is still there. I'm going to share a story with you about it in a minute. That's, that's when Randy was converted there, that building. His brother Kip was converted back 
back at 14th Street, and a lot of people were then. By the way, if you trace your own genealogy spiritually, keep doing who converted the person who, who converted me, who converted them, who converted them, you'll probably end up with somebody who came from there. And I'm not boasting about that. I'm just saying that's true. Not everybody, but a lot of people started there. You can trace your lineage back down there. It was phenomenal. Eventually, the campus ministry grew from five to 300. And that's with 100 people or so graduating and leaving every year. And it was phenomenal. So 1% of the campus, every 100th person you saw was a disciple. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. How you doing? The church grew from the community was 100,000 people. We grew to 1,000. So every 100th person you saw in the mall, hey, brother. Hey, sister. It was phenomenal. It was amazing. I, I sat there. I felt like I'm... I'm watching miracles. They hired me to be campus minister. Well, they hired me as an intern. They never told me I was campus minister, but I assumed that I was. <laughs> Stayed there for 10, 10 or 12 more years, then went to Atlanta later, helped start the church there. But I, I'm simply saying, folks, it grew so phenomenally and so great. And it was the power of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't about, yeah, the people were willing to serve and all, but I'm simply saying Chuck Lucas, he preached courageously, boldly. He was persecuted. He was attacked in the newspaper everywhere. But he kept on preaching, and it was amazing what you saw. Uh, the baptisms, I can give you the numbers. Uh, it started out. Okay, Sam, get your thing here. 35 in 1968, 41 the next year, 81 the next year, 109, 192, 200, 237, 228, 246. One year we said, let's go for 300, 313. Uh, I'm just telling you some numbers. And what am I saying that for? I'm saying that kind of like the book of Acts did, just to get us excited. You know what my dream is, folks, as a, as a, as a baby boomer? Um, is that the millennials and the Gen Xers, I said, I'm Caleb. Give me some hill country, but you go be Joshua. You lead the people, okay? I want to see you guys rise up. Rise up. And take us by the power, men and women, higher than we've ever... You want me to sit down? Okay, all right. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm all excited. I want, to, now I want to share one more thing before I go. Back when we started, black people and white people couldn't use the same bathroom. Here's what happened. Chuck Lucas invited the Black Student Union to come to 14th Street. One Sunday morning. I didn't know they were coming. 100, 100 black students showed up. All these little white ladies and white men. We're so glad you're here. <laughs> they loved it. One guy came up to me after and says, Well, I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm a black man. I'm not a Christian because Christianity has hurt the black man. But if I ever become one, I'll come here. <laughs> and I think he did. What I'm saying is, and you know what happened? Black people started getting converted. We broke the racial barrier. The Holy Spirit broke the racial barrier. And I'll play one song for you and I'll shut up and I'm out of here. And here's what happened. Okay, all right, all right, where you at? We heard that last night, didn't we? Oh! Black people, where would I be without the black people in my life? God's gonna let me be black in heaven. Amen. Come on, here we go. Woo! I feel like dancing. I don't know. Right, here we go. All right, here we go.
All right, let, 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 Kay, come on up. Tell your perspective with your conversion and everything in 1974 at Crossroads. I don't know how to top that. I could sing some old songs too, but. I am woman, hear me roar. Numbers too big to ignore. Okay, um, I want what I want to share. I, I do want to share about my own conversion story, but the reason I want to focus on a couple of things is because. I think sometimes in our world today, the culture, we think, oh man, I don't know how we can relate to these people because it's such a different culture than ours, and you know, the church is so different than what the world is like, and sometimes there's even a feeling of, we got to be, I know it's, it's not intentional, but sort of how can we be more like the world so we can pull people in? So go back to 1974, for me, I was a junior in college, I was a sorority girl, a partier, a, a pot smoker, a free love believer, peace, love, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, uh, part of the hippie, I, I wouldn't have called myself a hippie, but you know, I was part of that movement, part of that scene, um, just very involved in the world. Uh, you know, I, I believed in, you know, free sex, and I believed in um, just doing, you know, do what feels good. If it feels good, do it. That was a, a theme. And another thing that w we lived by was don't trust anyone over 30. <laughs> That's true. And I actually was, I was studying broadcasting. I was actually a part of a television show that was called 30 Below because it was only dealing with the, the mindsets of people who were under 30. And that's who, that's who, you know, we couldn't listen to over, uh, older people. Of course, with the Watergate scandal and, you know, there's so much distrust and so much cynicism and jadedness among the young people. So I, you know, I was raised in somewhat of a religious background. I'm grateful for the things I learned as a kid, but I completely let go of all of that in college and even in high school. And so my good friend starts getting, trying to get me to go to soul talks. Soul Talks? I don't want to go to Soul Talks. And she tried to get me to go to church, and I actually did go to church once, and I was impressed with the music. I remember hearing people singing a cappella and singing with all their hearts, and I'm like, wow, they really believe this stuff. They really believe it. And so, anyway, eventually, just to do my friend a favor, I went with her to Soul Talk. And we'd sit around in this room, about 15, 20 people, guys and girls, and there was a Bible study. And I honestly, what I did, and this was sort of typical for the time, is, wait a minute, are you saying, and I would question the person leading that Bible talk, because that's where, that's where I was at, I, was, I, was, I had that cynicism, but every time the person leading it would be very calm, and just say, well, let's look at the Bible, and he'd, he'd very genuinely and kindly and respectfully tell me, answer my questions as best he could and I after many I, I went to, I said I'm gonna go to one soul talk and I'm still here <laughs> I, I, I kept going to soul talks and I eventually was baptized on August 18th 1974 and I want to tell you it was such a dramatic change I didn't I, the, the drugs the sex the, the, the partying, the cursing, all of that was gone. And I only want to say that to, to remind you that, like Sam said, the Holy Spirit can change people dramatically. And, and all we did was look at the Bible. Jesus is Lord. 
the scripture I have in my Bible that I've, I've annotated to say August 1974 is this. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That describes what happened to me, and it doesn't matter what era of the world we're in. God can do it. God can change people dramatically from any kind of background. That was actually Colossians 4, in case you wondered. Okay, thanks. Okay. Given the shortness of time, you're going to get blasted real quick with everything. Okay. Um, you know, uh, let's talk about generations for a moment. Uh, and I could tell you about my conversion, but amen, I, I got converted. <laughs> Although I will tell you this, they hadn't quite learned counting the cost all the way yet because I got, I had one study which was Galatians 5 over a steak dinner that ruined my steak dinner on Wednesday and then on Monday they taught me lordship, repentance and baptism. I was baptized that Monday night and as soon as I was baptized they said, well we'll see you on Wednesday. I said, well what's Wednesday? They said, church. I said, okay, Wednesday's over. I, they said, I'll see you on Friday. I go, well, what's Friday? They go, well, that's student devotional. You'll love it. I said, okay. <laughs> I never missed. Uh, I understood whatever Jesus said, that's what I'll do, whatever needed to be done, amen. So, you know, you do learn as you go on, but amen. Uh, there's a silent generation of traditionalists born 1928 to 1945. We got anybody in here? <laughs> You're silent. Okay. Um, then there's the baby boomers. This is us right here, born uh, 46 to 64. Then there's Generation X. Uh, do we have any baby boomers in here? Okay, all right, good. Then we got the Generation X, born 65 to 80. Any, any Xers in here? My daughter is a Generation X. And then Millennials, born 81 to 96. My son is a millennial. He comes over to get right in between. And then there's Gen X. Or is it Gen Z? Is there any Z in here? We have a Z. Known as iGen or post-millennialisms or centennials born 1996 uh, uh, or later. Amen. All right. Generations tend to blame previous generations. Uh, sometimes that certainly that's true physically, but it can also be true spiritually. All right. Uh, generations are developed. It is true. Generations are developed by the previous generation. Generations have some different characteristics, strengths, weaknesses, but all have the same human needs and the need of salvation. Can I have an amen on that? Generations may need different strategies to win the world for Jesus, but must have the same message, conviction, and determination to win the world for their Jesus. The late 60s and 70s, that era of sex, drugs, rock and roll, we were brought into a different world called Christianity. Don't try to be like the world to win the lost. Don't try to figure out, well, what's going to draw everybody in? Yes, there's some strategy, but don't change who we are. 
will win people because of our purity and because of who we are and because we love Jesus and because we're totally committed. Amen? What was it like uh, I, 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 going into the mainline churches? That's what we did. We, we were, uh, yeah, basically, we were inspired to become campus ministers. Uh, there were hundreds of people that went into the ministry out of the Crossroads Church of Christ, both men and women. And we went to the mainline churches, and the basic thing was, hey, you know, I just, I, we, we're just going to go on campus. We're going to spend as much time on campus as we can, hours and hours and hours, day after day after day. We're going to find people, and we're going to ask them if we can have uh, soul talks in their, in their rooms, non-Christians. We start with that, and then we build from there. Uh, we went to the University of South Carolina. We were paid $14,000, no health insurance, and we thought this was awesome. Because we were getting to do what we really wanted to do. I do want to tell you that it was a fight with the traditional church. Because what would happen is that we would preach lordship. We would preach everybody needed to be evangelist. We would preach all of these things. And there was a lot of lukewarmness in there. Now, there were always some great people that backed us, that wanted that, said, amen, this is right. Uh, but there were a lot of people in those congregations that really weren't true Christians, really didn't have Jesus Lord, and certainly didn't embrace the mission of, of Jesus Christ. And that brought in a lot, a lot of conflict. The first convert that we had happened to be a black student. And as soon as we baptized him, I had some of the older white guys in the church come up and say, well, he'll go over to the black church. And I said, he will absolutely not go to the black church. From here on out, we are a black and a white church. And we built it from there. And of course, that was the South in 77, and that's just sort of the, 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 way, the way it is. Okay, skipping a lot of things. Uh, Crossroads Restoration, that was sort of hit. In 1979, Kip, my, uh, just to let you know, Chuck Lucas actually recently died. He was an inspiration for a lot of people. What sort of killed the whole Crossroads thing was that there, he fell into personal sin. And there was a lot of messing up. And I tell you, when leaders sin it does mess some things on up, and yet God still had a plan to take things forward. Amen? And, and things. But I love Chuck and appreciate him, repented, and, you know, he, I'll, I'll get to see him in heaven. Amen? In uh, 79, Kip, uh, who was converted to Crossroads, went to the Lexington Church of Christ. A difference that he was making, he was saying every member must be totally committed, not putting up with the fact and what was happening in, in a lot of these days, and he, and he developed a nine-lesson uh, series called First Principles. Now, it's interesting to note that in 1911, there was also a, 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 a paper called First Principles that had almost the same stuff in it. There's nothing new under the sun, amen, because it's just simply what the people need to be taught to become Christians. The most significant thing was in Acts uh, maybe 11.26, saved equals Christian equals baptized disciple, emphasis on repentance, lordship, and discipleship uh, even more. You cannot be saved, you cannot be a true Christian without being a disciple. Can I have an amen on that one? We got that one. Uh, and so there's got to be a decision to be a disciple before 
uh, you were baptized into Christ, which is just another way of saying making Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, but you need to understand, obviously, what that, what that means. In 81, there was a plan for planting what was called pillar churches in key cities around the world. In 82, uh, the plantings went out from there in Chicago and London. There was the first World Mission Seminar. Uh, the church was then renamed the Boston Church of Christ. It was the Lexington Church of Christ before that. Uh, the idea was that churches in the New Testament were called by the name of their city. Uh, one church for one city concept. Uh, prayer partners evolved into prayer partners is what we called the one another relationships down in crossroads. Prayer partners evolved into what was called discipleship partners, which became more directive, authoritative, and leadership assigned uh, during these years. In 83, the church was uh, planted in New York. Boston attendance reached 1,000. And uh, then what you've got to understand, Boston, New York, and London became the three main places the Crossroads trained ministers and their converts uh, would go uh, for further training. Because what was happening in the churches is that they were sort of exploding and, 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 the, and, and they were getting, you know, the people were getting fired because basically the old mainline church didn't want us there uh, in the sense of causing as they put it, problems with the lordship and everybody had to be evangelistic and their base of people that they knew weren't happy with what was going on. And so God, I believe, set up a certain time in history that I don't think will ever be again, at least in anybody's lifetime right here, where you had hundreds of people that had gone out, they were out on campuses across the United States, they had made all of these converts. We, we had 900 people baptized in, 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 in the nine years that we were at the University of South Carolina. And so you had all these converts, and they basically had no place to go. And then the inspiration came from, from the Boston church and planting churches and, and saying, well, we'll just make new churches, and we're going to have a world vision, and we're going to go into all the world. And all of these people, started moving to these three cities to get retrained and to say I want to go on a mission team and there was this incredible explosion uh, that happened uh, at that time. You want to say anything Dave? Yeah, those three cities were mostly Boston, New York and London and those were the plantings that had gone out from Boston but people did do that and of course that's one of the things that we did. We'd been in South Carolina uh, you know, we were inspired to say, let's, you know, where's a need? Let's go on. There's a need and, and let's go on the mission field. And it's not unlike what you heard last night, you know, go, do, do something. Um, and so we moved to, eventually, we actually thought we were going to go to Japan. And uh, so we actually went to Japan for about three or four months. And uh, many of you may remember the Gurganises, Irene and George Gurganis. We worked with them for a few months. We thought, we thought we're going to leave the church in Tokyo. I can hardly say a word in Japanese. Do we, you know, we don't How'd really look the word. How'd you, our words McDonald's. Don't Where's go, McDonald's? Don't I can eat. Go McDonald's. We learned that. We had our kids with us who were six and three, I think, at the time. Lived there for a couple of months. Came back and lived in Boston. And guess what? There was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of uh, mixing things. Kind of like, you know, taking a tossed salad and let's toss it around and see how it lands. Uh, people got moved around, and in the end, we didn't go to Tokyo. Um, they chose an Asian couple to go there. <laughs> go figure. <laughs> Don't understand that at all. Uh, Frank and Erica Kim, and Erica is Japanese, Frank is uh, Korean. But um, So we eventually moved over to the European mission field and did... Um, Mission, we did mission work and started the church in Munich 
and eventually got in, got to Paris. But the point is, is that all of us kind of emerged into these places because we wanted to go do something. We wanted to serve God in some capacity, and we did want to get out of our comfort zone. And uh, so all of this happened. There was just that fever of let's go do something somewhere. I think one of the, the big things you've got to understand is that uh, in, in the Boston movement, uh, uh, the church planting movement, uh, we came up with what was called the Evangelization Proclamation. That's actually uh, one there uh, on the side, and it's uh, signed by what was all called the world sector leaders at that time. We were world sector leaders for uh, New England and for continental Europe. And the attitude was, hey, we will die trying to do what God wants to do. We felt called. And we would be sacrificial. I mean, we all gave up our homes. We gave up. Uh, we sold everything. We, 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 we did whatever God wanted us to do. And we didn't know where the next paycheck necessarily in certain places were going to come from. We just knew God would take care of us. We weren't doing everything right. But let me tell you, we were trying to go on faith and do something great for God and save the world. Uh, and so that was a great thing that was adopted in 1994 to plant a, a, a church of disciples in all 170 nations with a city over 100,000. That was, that was the goal right there. When you got to 1998, uh, there's where some things I think started getting funky, uh, a lot more humanistic, and uh, using stats, I think, in a, in a, in a very bad way. Uh, pushing people, maybe asking for uh, too much money. And then because we had this goal, we weren't smart enough to say, hey, we can change our goal and, uh, and, and to move things a little bit slower. And yet we were just pushing, 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 and moving, 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 moving. And I think that uh, caused uh, some things that were definitely not good. And uh, you want to say anything on that, babe? we got to finish up. 2003, Henry Crete releases his letter, Honest to God, and uh, this sends many mess congregations into uh, turmoil. Uh, a spiritual crisis occurs. Uh, I, you know, if you get asked, is the letter from God or Satan, it's always good to say, well, whose name is at the bottom? And at the name, the name is Henry Crete. Uh, that's who the letter is from. It's not from God, it's not from Satan, it's from a guy named Henry Crete, from his perspective on things. But it broke open what a lot of feelings were uh, and, and such. And, uh, and then that started moving. Kip stepped down. He was asked to step down from being sort of the leader. And, and, and then we started trying to figure out how do you bring all everybody back together because a lot of trust uh, had been broken. You know what I'm talking about? And so how do you build that trust? Ultimately, look at Jesus, you look at God, uh, you do whatever repenting you've got to do. The Boston Restoration was church plantings, a world evangelism, a plan, six-year plan, every nation, a world financial plan, a world leadership plan, world sector leaders, geographic sector leaders, uh, women taking more leadership and being involved in decisions, uh, instruments and music. Uh, which was a correction from the teaching of the New Testament, saying that it didn't allow it, and then a poor and needy emphasis and starting hope worldwide. There were so many great things, and people were converted literally all over the world. Some of the problems, discipling authority, became too negative, what's wrong, and I think there was a shaming of people trying to motivate them, but in a very wrong kind of way. A numbers competition, uh, history seeking, failing to understand the maturing process in people and in churches. I think this was a big deal uh, of, of, of us who missed that. Uh, not understanding 
uh, the difference and, and, and being flexible with that plan, going too fast, like I said, sending out untrained small planting teams, Bible-taught leader-strength people when you sort of got to the end of all the different nations. And that's why I think we lost a lot of those churches uh, in the transi transition because they didn't get the help that they needed, but we didn't really uh, put them out in the right way either many times. Uh, money and people got diverted to L.A. church to build a historic church. This caused a lot of feelings. Why? Expected We were expected to grow in the same way, and yet the resources were being taken away, and that caused a lot of issues within the leadership. Uh, then there was the Philippines that, I, I'll tell you, historically, it just is a, a, a pretty open field. And uh, they were baptizing people left and right. And then you went to the Soviet Union plantings, uh, an incredible open door, daily baptisms immediately. And, and what happened is sort of a weird thing where the expectation became if it can happen there, it should happen everywhere like that. And that, I think, also caused uh, some problems, not really understanding that there are different fields and different opennesses of those fields uh, and such. I think there was definitely some harsh authoritarian uh, leadership with, with, with some, and, uh, and, and again, just how people were, were pressed, and I think that was emotionally difficult, especially for uh, a, a number of women. And so those were some of the challenges that was there, and I was certainly involved in, in, in some of that, and, and you know, forgive me in the sense of my sins, will you forgive me? And uh, in the sense, but we were trying to do what was right. And, and, and once we started realizing we need to go a different direction, then I think God put us in a different direction and said, okay, let's still go because it's still go and make sure that the world gets evangelized. Anything you want to say? Yeah, the only thing I would just like to say is just please be careful when you try to repeat the, or try to share the history because I've heard a lot of people say, well, everyone was like this. And everyone did that. Yeah. And this is what it, this is what all the church. And that's just not true. That is not a true statement. And you're indicting uh, like thousands of people. You know, it was there were some there was there was some of that. The the harshness and the shaming and absolutely that happened. But it didn't happen to everyone. Uh, yeah. And here's the thing: is that after the the letter happened, after the crisis and all of that. Here's what was said a lot, and this is very damaging to people's faith. What was damaging is it, even from the pulpit sometimes it was said, we did everything so wrong. And what that did to, like even me sitting in the, in the pew, uh, well, if I've done everything so wrong over the last 20 years of my life, why am I still here? I thought I did it for God. I, 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 did I do everything so wrong? And so that's the danger sometimes because I, I hear a lot of people who really weren't there, who don't know what happened or, or maybe had very extreme situations and feel these things. And I, I have to look back and go, you know, there were some things that we bought into that I wish we hadn't. But I am so grateful that God worked. I mean, God, he leadeth us, you know, like that song. He leadeth me, oh, blessed thought. He leadeth me. He's leading us through the good times, through the bad times. I can share some horror stories. I've got some damages. Damage. I've got some baggage. And sometimes, to be honest with you, things push my buttons. You know, I have triggers because of some things that happen. And I can be reactionary and all of that. But at the same time, I want to always know that God was working. He's guiding us. He's helping us. He's refining us. He's pruning us. And he will continue to do that. And you know what? 
we still don't have all the answers. None of us do. And that's what's amazing to me is that, you know, well, if we can think, well, we've made all these mistakes. Well, guess what? In 30, 40 years, you're going to go, well, look at all the mistakes we made. <laughs> you know, we're all going to make mistakes, but I'm just so grateful that God keeps working through us. You know, one bit of, one bit of good news is that uh, the old Crossroads a Church, which became the University Church, and then we had to replant a church down there, which became the Gainesville Christian Church. Uh, over the years, they have been meeting, over, and, and, and Sam's been a big part of helping to make this happen. Uh, but just in the last few months, they have decided to come back together, and they have joined us again. And we have moved back into what was the Crossroads Church of Christ. And God is working, God is moving, I think, to unify us literally uh, all over the world. Amen? I'm going to uh, read this to maybe close us out. I wanted to do two things, but I'm already over. The woodcutter's wisdom. Once there was an old man who lived in a tiny village. Although poor, he was envied by all, for he owned a beautiful white horse. Even the king coveted his treasure. A horse like this had never been seen before. Such was its splendor, its majesty, its strength. People offered fabulous prices for the steed, but the old man always refused. This horse is not a horse to me, he would tell them. It is a person. How could you sell a person? He's a friend, not a possession. You could, how could I sell a friend? The man was poor and the temptation was great, but he never sold the horse. One morning, he found that the horse was not in the stable. All the village came to see him. You old fool, they scoffed. We told you that someone would steal your horse. We warned you that you would be robbed. You are so poor now. How could you ever hope to protect such a valuable animal? If It would have been better to have sold him right away. You could have gotten whatever price you wanted. No amount would have been too high. Now the horse is gone, and you've been cursed with misfortune. The old man responded, don't speak too quickly. Say only that the horse is not in the stable. That is all we know. The rest is judgment. If I've been cursed or not, how can you know? How can you judge? The people contested, don't make us out to be fools. We may not be philosophers, but great philosophy is not needed. The simple fact that your horse is gone is a curse. The old man spoke again. All I know is that the stable is empty and the horse is gone. The rest, I don't know. Whether it be a curse or a blessing, I can't say. All we can see is a fragment. Who can say what will come next? The people of the village laughed. They thought the man was crazy. They had always thought he was a fool. If he wasn't, he would have sold the horse and lived off the money. But instead, he was a poor woodcutter, uh, an old man still cutting firewood and, and dragging it out of the forest and selling it. He lived hand to mouth in the misery of poverty, now he had proven that he was indeed a fool. After 15 days, the horse returned. He hadn't been stolen. He had run away into the forest. Not only had he returned, he brought a dozen wild horses with him. Once again, the village people gathered around the woodcutter and spoke, Old man, you were right, and we were wrong. What we thought was a curse was a blessing. Please forgive us. The man responded, Once again, you go too far. Say only that the horse is back. State only that a dozen horses returned with him. But don't judge. How do you know if this is a blessing or not? 
You see only a fragment. Unless you have the whole story, how can you judge? You read only one page of a book, can you judge the whole book? You read only one word of a phrase, can you understand the entire phrase? Life is so vast, yet you judge all of life with one page or one word. All you have is a fragment. Don't say this is a blessing. No one knows. I am content with what I know. I am not perturbed by what I don't. Maybe the old man is right, they said to one another. So they said little. But down deep, they knew he was wrong. They knew it was a blessing. Twelve wild horses had returned with one horse. With a little bit of work, the animals could be broken and trained and sold for much money. The old man had a son, an only son. The young man began to break the wild horses. After a few days, he fell from one of the horses and broke both legs. Once again, the villages gathered around the old man and cast their judgments. You were right, they said. You proved you were right. The dozen horses were not a blessing. They were a curse. Your only son has broken his legs, and now, in your old age, you have no one to help you. Now, you are poorer than ever. The old man spoke again. You people are obsessed with judging. Don't go so far. Say only that my son broke his legs. Who knows if it's a blessing or a curse? No one knows. We only have a fragment. Life comes in fragments. It so happened that a few weeks later, the, the country engaged in a war against a neighboring country. All the young men of the village were required to join the army. Only the son of the old man was excluded because he was injured. Once again, the people gathered around the old man crying and screaming because their sons had been taken. There was little chance that they would return. The enemy was strong and the war would be a losing struggle. They would never see their sons again. You were right, old man, they wept. God knows you were right. This proves it. Your son's accident was a blessing. His legs may be broken, but at least he is with you. Our sons, they're gone forever. The old man spoke again. It is impossible to talk with you. You always draw conclusions. No one knows. Say only this. Your sons had to go to war and mine did not. No one knows if it's a blessing or a curse. No one is wise enough to know. Only God knows. And that's a good way to think about history. Love you guys. Wish we had more time. You're awesome. Thank you for your love for God, your love for us, your love for the kingdom. Amen. Wow, it's been a long time. You're in 40 now, right? I know, I am. Wow. So are you in